Would you turn to me with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8. I have a friend who uh, was uh, going through uh, nursing school, and uh, I guess there are four sections to this nursing program, and my friend unfortunately did not pass one of the sections of the nursing program, and so they needed to retake it. Uh, but the pressure was even greater for this person because at this school, you needed to retake it, and if you retook it, and failed again, then you could not go back to that school. So uh, the pressure was mounting, and as my friend was going through it and was going through it for the second time, they found themselves uh, really feeling fearful that they may not pass. And, and by God's grace, they uh, just passed in um, December and uh, were able to pass that, uh, the course. It kind of got me thinking a little bit, kind of like what we are going to be dealing with today, a makeup exam. Have you ever have you ever gone through a makeup exam in your life? And so for some of us, what we've done is that we've failed a particular thing. Maybe it was a driving exam, maybe it was an exam in college, maybe it's an exam in high school and you've you failed something and you have to retake it, you have to do it over again. Well, that's what we're gonna see with these disciples today. And what we're going to see with the disciples is not only is there a makeup exam that's happening with them, but what hopefully you're going to see is the compassion of Christ and his patience with these people. His compassion and his patience. These two things just keep coming out over and over again. So turn with me to Mark chapter 8. And let's look at verse 1 and following. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 13. Here's the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. And why does he have compassion on the crowd? Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come a far way. And his disciples answered, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and he blessed them and he said, These also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there was about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. It was a sound like deja vu all over again. James, you just preached this three weeks ago. Come on. You preached on the feeding of the 5,000. What's going on here? Well, it's a completely different story, but sometimes God has to repeat a theme in our lives so that we get it because we're slow to learn. We're slow to understand. We're slow to comprehend. And some of us are slow to obey. I want you to consider these themes this morning that just keep jumping out at me as we've been going through this study of the gospel of Mark. First is the theme of God's, Jesus' continued shepherding of the disciple's heart. 
He is constantly shepherding their heart. He's exposing their heart to them. He's examining their heart and he's educating their heart. And that's what Jesus does. He exposes our hearts. He examines our hearts and he educates them. He constantly teaches us. That theme is just constantly coming out in my life. And as I've been studying Mark here. And what's the heart? The Bible tells us the heart is the internal you. It's what most animates you. It's your internal being. And the Bible talks about your heart as the wellspring of your life. It's out of your heart comes your thoughts, your cognition, your thoughts and beliefs. Out of your heart comes your feelings. It's your desires. It's your passions. And out of your heart comes your intentions or your will. So it's cognition, it's affection, it's volition. It's the things that make up you. That's your heart. So what Jesus is doing is he's constantly shepherding the heart of these disciples. He's exposing their heart. He's examining their heart. He's educating their heart. That's one of the themes that keeps coming out. But there's a second theme that keeps coming out for me is that Jesus is exposing his own heart to us. And Jesus is sharing with us who he is. And what we've been seeing is that Jesus is caring and he's loving and he's compassionate. He's gracious. He is, he is so very confident in who he is. And then he's sharing that with others. He's constantly giving to others. He's healing others. We've seen him having power over disease, power over demons, power over death. That is the Christ that we are celebrating here. And this Christ, what I'm seeing is this Christ who is so very compassionate. He says it right here in the passage. He is compassionate to the people. These people that are there who are in desperate need, he is showing compassion and love and grace to them. But he's also so very patient to these disciples. They don't get it, but Jesus is okay with that. He just keeps teaching them and educating their hearts. So we see Jesus' constant shepherding of the people. We see Jesus revealing his own heart to his people. There's a passage that I've been telling you about that I've been meditating on for at least the last four or five months. And it's in Matthew chapter 11. So turn there with me for a moment because I'm going to take a quick um, excursus. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 and following. And it's a passage that you guys are so familiar with if you've been in church. And I love this. And Jesus is revealing his heart in this passage. And I think you'll see that connecting to our passage this morning. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, it says, Come to me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I see these three words that keep repeating in here. Look, and if you want to highlight them, if you, it's up to you. It says, come to me first time. All you who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's used twice in the passage. So me is used twice in the passage. Rest is used twice in the passage. And yoke is used twice in the passage. It says, come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of my friends gave me a birthday present and it was a book by Dane Ortland. 
And the book is called Gentle and Lowly, God's Heart for Sinners and Sufferers. So it's it so interesting to me that, you know, I've been meditating on this passage. I can't get this passage out of my head for the last four months. And then my friend gives me this passage, uh, gives me this passage in a book, really great book if you want to pick it up. And what I want you to know is this, that the Christ's very heart for you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know who he is, that as you go through your sinful times and as you go through your suffering times, you need to remind yourself of who he is. And who is he? He's What's just natural to him, what ignites him, what pours out of him is his love for you. I don't know if you're feeling discouraged. I don't know if you're feeling frustrated. I don't know if you're feeling weary. I don't know if you're feeling despondent or discouraged in life. Maybe you're running on fumes and you feel like your Christian life has come to a place where it's just disappointing you and that you're feeling like God is not happy with you. I don't know. Maybe that's you. Maybe you believe that God's patience is wearing out on you. But the controlling question that you and I have to answer is this, who is Jesus? And what does Jesus say about me if I'm in him? And that controlling question is really important. So the first theme is that Jesus is shepherding his people. Second is Jesus is displaying his very heart. But there's a third theme that we need to understand is this. What does it take to believe in Jesus? This has been coming out through Mark. Mark is trying to expose who Jesus is. But this theme of what does it take to believe in Jesus, it's not enough just to see Jesus do things. Because we have seen thousands upon thousands of people seeing Jesus doing miraculous things. It's not even just hearing Jesus because the disciples sat there and heard Jesus. They heard every one of his messages. See, it's not enough just to see Jesus. It's not enough just to hear Jesus. You must trust Jesus. It's a whole difference. And what we're going to see are two groups of people. Well, actually, we'll see a crowd. We'll see the disciples and then we'll see the Pharisees. So three groups of people. And I want you to see how each one of these groups respond to Jesus. So, so here's the message, pretty simple, five um, phases. First is the crowd of Gentiles, that's really quick, verse 1. Then the call of the disciples, number 2. Third is the compassion of Jesus, number 3. Then fourth is the counsel of Jesus, how Jesus is going to counsel his disciples. Four, and then the conflict with the religious leaders. Okay, so let's go. First, the crowd of the Gentiles. Now, Jesus has, as we saw from last time, Jesus has moved from the, Gen, uh, from the Jewish region into the Gentile region. What he has been doing is he's been going out and preaching the gospel. He has been, yes, healing people, but the healing was not the primary issue. The healing was just to authenticate the message that he is sharing, and he is sharing the message of the gospel. He's been sharing it in Jewish lands, and now he is taking it to Gentile lands, which is so very good for most of us here, because most of us here are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And that the gospel is out there for you and it's been given to you. And Jesus is saying, I am bringing this to not just this small group of Israelites. I'm bringing it to my whole group of people. And I'm finding people in every land, every tribe, every tongue is out there. So this this growing group is there. Jesus really knew how to put a crowd on. And it's like in these days, it says verse one, a great crowd again gathered. Mark is hitting that word again, that this is again happening, that whenever Jesus would speak in this time of popularity, people were following him and listening to him. 
And what was amazing is that these Gentile believers had heard probably what Jesus had done. And now they had seen the miracles that we have just heard about last time in the last message. And these miracles, and they, they said, I want to learn more about Christ. What would it have been like to be one of those people that got a chance to hear not James or Tim or Doug preach, but Jesus Christ preach? I mean, it, it would be just utterly amazing to be able to sit there at Jesus' feet like Mary did and just learn and just take in. And these Gentiles are there taking in what Jesus is teaching. And what is amazing to me is this. It's been three days. I'm going to go maybe 30 or 40 minutes. It's going to be three days of Jesus' preaching, and they didn't have anything to eat. I was saying to my wife earlier, um, my sad problem is that I like food too much. I'm already thinking this morning, what is it that we're going to have for dinner? And I'm sitting there, I said, isn't this crazy, Amy, that I am preaching on these Gentiles who were non-believers at the time, sitting there for three days, so captivated by Christ, and I can't even make it three minutes without thinking about food. It's so sad. You can laugh. It is pretty sad. But these Gentiles were captivated by Christ. So I want you to know that. The second thing I want you to see is the call of the disciples. Verse uh, 1, again, second part, it says, In those days when the great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to them. Okay, so he calls the disciples and he says, Come to me. Once again, it reminds me of that Matthew 11 passage. Come to me, Jesus says. What, what an impressive thing it is. What an incredible privilege it is to be able to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and they, this open invitation, he calls the disciples to them. And then what he does is he speaks to them. What, I just, don't let those privileges pass you by. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, actually the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, calls you to themselves and you get to talk to them and they get to talk to you what a what an awesome privilege that is so he calls them to him and he talks about the fact that these people have been with me for three days and they've had nothing to eat we see now the compassion of christ verse two and following it says i have compassion in the crowd because of the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat And we see Christ's humbleness. We see Christ's tenderness. We see his gentleness, his empathy. He could feel with them. His compassion, actually, the Greek word talks about being moved in your bowels, that deep down inside of him. This is not just a superficial feeling. You know, some of us can feel a level of pity for somebody, and we hear a story, and then we just forget them. That's not what was happening with Jesus. Jesus was moved with with great compassion for them. It was a visceral reaction. It was deep within them. But it's not just that he felt for them. He wanted to do something to deal with their pain. He wanted to take care of their suffering. He wanted to take care of their misery. That is so important. You know, as as a pastor and as a counselor, we are called to be compassionate with people. But I, sad to say, I am tempted not to be compassionate at times. Jesus, we never see that where Jesus is saying, you know, I'm just so sick of you people coming to me with your needs. He never says that. He never says that. Ever. And let that deeply 
saturate in you as a sinner. Let it deeply saturate in you as a sufferer that Jesus is never tired of coming, you coming to him and him coming to you in the midst of your pain. Jesus knew their greatest need was spiritual and he fed them for three days, but he also knew that they had a great need physically, so now he wants to feed them physically. And he says, if I send these people away, verse 3, and they're hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way. And some of them have come from afar away. Jesus knew that these people had come from a great distance. And I've been feeding them spiritually, but now their bodies need to be taken care of. So that's important for us as well. We can go so far to take care of our physical bodies and never take care of our spiritual hearts. And sometimes we spend so much time taking care of our spiritual life that we don't take care of our physical lives. We need to do both. And Jesus said something. He turned the question to the disciples. He says, and and his disciples answered him. He says, how can one feed these people bread here in this desolate place? Duh. Okay. The disciples should have remembered just maybe weeks or months ago, Jesus has just fed 5,000 men, maybe fifteen to 20,000 people with bread and fish. And you remember, he broke it and gave. He broke it and gave. And they were just giving and receiving and receiving. How did they not get it? That moves me to the third thing that I want you to see. The counseling of the disciples, verses 5 through 9. And I want you to see the patience of Christ in this counseling. That the disciples have this makeup exam right now. And Jesus is being so very patient with them. He says, he says that... I want you to see that there is something radically different here in this situation. I want you to see who is with you. See, the disciples are struggling with a defective memory. Maybe you do. The disciples are struggling with a distorted picture of who Christ is. Maybe that's you. The disciples are struggling with this divided commitment in their lives. Maybe that's you. The disciples are disappointed. Maybe they were hoping that the Messiah was going to raise up. You know, after the last one, they were, the crowds were saying, let's make you king. Let's make you Messiah now. And the, and Jesus pushed that aside. Maybe their, their hopes have been disappointed. Maybe that's you. So maybe your memory is defective. Maybe your picture of Christ is distorted. Maybe you're divided in your commitment. Maybe your hope has been disappointed. But I want you to know this, that Jesus, Ask them a question. Verse 5. How many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Now is this the same, is this the same um, miracle that Mark is just repeating? No, it's not. Let's look at some similarities. Between this, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 occurs in all, five, all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The feeding of the 4,000 is only in Matthew and Mark alone. Now, in both miracles, what's similar is this. Both miracles involve a huge crowd, which we have. Both miracles involve a small amount of bread or fish, which we have in both. Both miracles show the disciples doubting the Lord's ability to handle that. That's similar. Both miracles, Jesus took what was little and then multiplied it which was similar, and both miracles, the crowd ate and were satisfied. That was where their similarities are. The differences are this. We have 5,000 in the prior one. We have 4,000 in this one. We have the amount of bread is different. We have five loaves versus seven loaves. We have leftovers in the prior one. We had 12 
baskets full, and here we have seven large baskets. And it's interesting that even the word basket, the small basket in the first one were small handheld baskets. The one in the second miracle in the feeding of the 4,000 was a basket that was large enough to hide a man. So these, it's two different types of baskets that are here. One meal came after teaching for one day. One meal came after teaching for three. So they're different. And what Jesus is saying here is this. I'm trying to teach you that through your memory that's defective, through your distorted picture of me, through your divided loyalties at times, through your disappointed hopes, I want to teach you who I am. So Jesus then asked them what you have. And they said, we have some loaves. I want you to think about this. Whatever little thing you have, give it to Christ. Let him multiply it. See, sometimes we look at what we lack and we say nothing can be done with this. And Jesus says, give me what you have and let me do the rest. Because Christ can give. Oftentimes we focus on what I can't do rather than what Christ can do. I can't, he can, he has, he does, he will, I can only in him. Don't focus on the I can't, focus on he can. Jesus said in verse 6, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and once again, what does he do? This is so important as you take your meal today. Give thanks. Because even the meal that you have is a gracious gift by God. He gave thanks. He looked up to heaven and gave thanks. And then what he did was he broke it. This was a one-time act. Broke. One time. And then he gave. In the Greek, it is a continual action. He just gave. He gave. He gave. He gave. This creative power. The same Christ that spoke this world into existence is the same Christ that is out of his hands giving and giving to you. That's the Christ that we serve. And the disciples set this before the people, and they set it before the crowd. Jesus gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the crowd. And that's what Tim and Doug and I are called to do. We have been given by people before us, and what we're called to do is to give to you, and then what you're called to do is to give to others. And that's how we multiply. Give and give and give. Let Christ be the one doing that for you. The, dis- the crowd sat down and listened. They trusted and obeyed Christ. Christ said, sit down, and they did. They trusted Christ. They'd been listening to Christ for three days. And it was from him and through him and for him, as Romans 11 tells us, that all things are given for his glory. So put what you have, the small things that you have, into Christ's hands and let Christ do the work. Transfer it all to God. Don't try to do it yourself. Give thanks for the small things that you have. And then and decisively and definitively break it and give it out. Because what Christ wants to do is to continually give out of your life. He's an infinitely supplied God. He is sufficient God. There is not a problem that you will ever endure, not a suffering, not a trial, not a trouble that is greater than the God that is with you. Let him work through you. Trust him. I love this passage in Ephesians. It says, for this reason, 
I bow my knee before the Father from whom everyone in heaven and on earth is named. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ. That surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than you could ever ask or imagine. According to the power that is at work within you. That is the power that resides with you if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't look at the small amount of fish or bread. Look at the power of the creative God that is with you. I find it also interesting that it was so cool that the disciples got to participate in this. Could Jesus have fed these 4,000 men? Matthew tells us it was just men. And then there were additional women. So there may have been 10 or 12,000 again. Could Jesus have fed all of these people himself? He absolutely could have. If he's creating this food, he could have passed it out himself. He chose to involve the disciples just like he chooses to involve you. In his work of ministry, don't ever forget that you have the privilege of participating with Jesus in the work that is being done. Jesus blesses what is so very little. He, he commands people to be served. He does that. He satisfies people. I love this. I go out for a meal. I hate to tell you, sometimes I go out for a meal and I walk away from there and I tell my wife on the way home, I need to get something else to eat because I am still hungry. I need to lose some weight. (laughs) Nobody walked away from Jesus' meal thinking I want something more to eat. Not only were they satisfied spiritually, but they were satisfied physically by Jesus Christ because Jesus fully satisfies Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of all humanity's hearts if they will trust in him. Jesus gives one last thing I want you to consider before we move. He blesses the servants. He allows them the privilege of picking up baskets. What's left over? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and what? Running over. Your cup runs over. I have come that they may have life and have life to the what? Full. God doesn't just satisfy. He oversatisfy. He pours his grace and grace upon you. Mark 8, 9, it says this. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. After he had fed them for three days spiritually, he has now fed them physically and they are gorged. They are satisfied. He sends them away to their communities. To go out into the world that he's saying now, you've had this opportunity to hear this message. Now leave and go and spread this good news message. And Jesus leaves. Don't lose sight of what Jesus is doing here. He's feeding them. And then he's sending them out to share that with others. Okay, so now we have seen the fact that there has been this Um, work with the disciples. We see Jesus's compassion. We see that Jesus has been counseling the disciples in their remake. And now what we see is the inevitable conflict with the Pharisees. Look here in verse 10. 
And immediately he got out of the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, we're not sure where Dalmanutha is. Um, it could be Magdala, but it seems to be in a Jewish territory. And so he uses the word immediately. 42 times in the book, Mark has been using this word immediately. 12 times in the rest of the whole, bi- uh, rest of the whole New Testament. But 42 times in this book, we see that Jesus is a man of action. He's constantly on the move. He has this deep resolve. There's no procrastination in Jesus. Jesus is moving. There's no hesitation, no delayed obedience. He is on the move. And that's what we should be doing as well. But where is he going? He's going to a Jewish territory. We're seeing that it's on the eastern shore of the, I'm sorry, in the eastern shore to the western shore. He's moving from the eastern shore to the western shore. He's moving from Gentile region to the Jewish region. And this journey is a journey that is a journey of judgment. That as he is speaking this gospel message out to people, people are called to trust him or not. And if they don't trust him, there's judgment that comes. And what we see is the crowd that has been following him. We see the disciples that are kind of slow on the uptake. And now we see these Pharisees, these religious leaders. Those that should have gotten it, didn't. And what we see is the stubbornness of the Pharisees. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. This conflict is continuing to increase with these Pharisees. The Pharisees have been doing this. In Mark chapter 2, verse 16. In Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Mark chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 5. We see the Pharisees are constantly coming after Jesus to have a conflict with him. And this is being fueled by Satan. Satan is using these religious leaders to trip Christ up to put him to the test. It was an open test. They were, they were trying to create a dilemma for Jesus, kind of like what Satan did when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. I want you to show me some miraculous sign that you are God. Was it because they really doubted and they really wanted to believe? No. There was a disbelief. There was an unbelief that was deep in their hearts. It's true in so many people. Their doubt was not connected to an unbelief. Some of us doubt. That happens. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes you go through doubts. That's okay. That happens. We don't know everything. And as you go through the struggles, Deuteronomy 29, 29, really good verse to memorize, says what? The secret things belong to God. And the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Jesus Christ, God, has revealed only a small amount of things to us. He knows everything. We know what he has provided for us in his word. Learn this. And he says, I'm not going to tell you everything. So therefore, there are going to be times where you're going to have doubts. That's okay. Bring your doubts to God. But there's a difference between doubt and denial. There's a difference between doubt and distortion. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. So that's what these stubborn Pharisees were doing. They, they had a disbelief. I'm not going to believe you. I refuse to believe you. That's different. It's different that when you go to a place of denial and doubt and distortion and disbelief, which is unbelief, now there's going to be persistent disobedience in your life. That God is going to tell you to do one thing and you're going to say, I'm not going to do it. 
And that persistent disobedience leads to increasing darkness. And that's what we're seeing with these Pharisees. That as they've been distorting God's word and disbelieving God's word, we find them disobeying God's word and they're going to an increased darkness in their lives. They're actually going to be there to try to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. And that warning is there for you and for me that if we are constantly going against the word of God, not just a questioning doubt, but an out-and-out disbelief, an out-and-out unbelief, I don't believe you, an out-and-out disobedience, it will lead to greater darkness in your life. That's what was happening with these Pharisees. Verse 12, we see the sovereign judgment of God. He sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. See the deep pain of Christ. I've already told you that he's compassionate and impatient. But his patience can run out. There is a point in time that every one of us is appointed to die. And after that, the judgment. There is a point in time where God's patience with us runs out. It was running out here with these Pharisees. You are the religious leaders. You have the Old Testament. You should see who I am, and you're failing to trust me. I'm done with you. Their spiritual blindness, their deafness, the unwillingness to believe God, this hardness of their heart. And Jesus is just so deeply grieved over it. We've seen him sigh twice here in the Gospel of Mark. Once at the misery of the physical struggles that were happening with the people. And second here with these Pharisees. He just sighs. I pray that God is not sighing over any of us today. Sighing because of our apostate rejection of him. Sighing because we are hard-hearted, stubborn. I pray that's not you today. The unbelievers were struggling because they were focusing on the temporal and the earthly rather than the spiritual. They were focusing on what they could visibly see, and that's what they thought they could put their faith in, rather than what they could not see. They were looking for the spectacular sign rather than recognizing that the Messiah was standing right before them. But maybe that's us. How many times do you or I say to God that, God, I need you to do this for me, and he doesn't? How many times have you said, well, God, if you were really God, you would do this? And he doesn't. And we create these tests for God in the hardness of our own hearts. I pray that you're not doing that today. Because as you do that, and as I do that, what it does is it exposes a disbelief in God rather than a trust in him. This is really scary in verse 13. And he left them. The stubbornness of these Pharisees led to the sovereign judgment of God. He left them. 
If you get a chance in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, three times in that passage, Jesus says, or God says through Paul, that God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. He is a compassionate and patient God, but his patience can come to an end. There are people sitting here in this room. There are people watching on live stream that have heard messages of needing to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've heard it week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and you've refused to believe upon him. And you've been thinking that I'll get another day, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, but God has only guaranteed you this moment. I pray you will not leave that opportunity laying before you. That Jesus is presenting himself before you today. And the call is for you to trust him. Yes, we may be the disciples that are kind of confused and dull, okay, and the crowd that is a little fickle, yes, but there are persistent rebellion that we see in the religious leaders. I pray that that's not you today. So let me close with this. Inevitably, there's a witness that God gives. There is a warning that he gives, but there's a waiting in judgment. He gives a witness. Jesus has been preaching to them. He gives in that witness a warning that judgment is coming, but there's a waiting. And the the problem with the waiting for many of us is this. We think that the waiting means that Jesus is not going to judge. It's not. Jesus is being just very so patient so that every one of his children will come to faith. But eventually there's going to be a judgment. The witness, the warning, the waiting, but there will be a final judgment. Think about Noah's day. Noah was building an ark. I think it was for 120 years he built this ark. And as he's building this ark, he is preaching to the world, the judgment is coming. They see this visible sign of the ark. They hear his message and they reject it. And the world was judged. Israel has been reading in the minor prophets. Israel has been given warning after warning that if you continue to live like the world, a judgment is coming upon you. And they rejected, they rejected, they rejected. And the judgment came. America. The world. You cannot abort babies. And rip them out of a woman's womb. You cannot spit in the face of God when it talks about his morality. You cannot shun him and say that God bless us and go exactly against what he says. And expect that God is not going to bring judgment. And this waiting period of time is God's graciousness to you. His compassion and patience that you will trust in him. I pray that that would be you today. I'll end with this. There's a significant difference between doubt and unbelief. For, for some of us, you have some faith questions. That's okay. You know that there's a God. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You believe that he died on a cross, rose again. You believe that there's a three God, God, um, God in one person, uh, three God. <laughs> My goodness, I'm 
James, get your theology right here. (laughs) One God, three persons. You believe that, that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You believe that the Word of God is right. But you have some doubts at times. That happens. It's okay. Turn those doubts to God. But there's a difference between doubting and unbelief. I pray today is not your day of unbelief. You know, faith is interesting because faith is believing who God is and believing what he has done for you. So today I call you to repent. I call you to believe. I pray that this is the day that you will turn to Christ alone for your salvation. We need more than just simple forgiveness. We need a relationship with God. That Jesus is standing right there before you, feeding you physically, yes, but he's also feeding you spiritually. And your faith in Jesus Christ comes from this. You need to know the facts. You need to know the facts that you are a sinner. You need to know the facts that you will stand in judgment before God. You need to know the facts that there is a God who loves but as also a God who judge. You need to know the facts, but you need to have an agreement with those facts. You need to believe those facts. You need to recognize that those facts are true. It's not just information in your head. You need to recognize those facts are true. But it's not enough the facts. It's not just enough an agreement. You have to internalize it. You have to make it your own. See, the demons had the facts, and the demons actually had agreement, but they didn't internalize it. They didn't make it their own. Make it your own today. And then what you need to do is you make make a total commitment. You need to turn from sin and turn to Christ alone. And then your hope rests in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So... You know, if you're like my friend who failed that nursing exam, persistence. Go back and I failed, but I'm going to be persistent. That's okay. Don't be the Pharisees. Stubborn unbelief. Lord, I pray today that you would remind us that there is a A moment in time you're giving us. Father, you love us with an everlasting love. You, before this world was ever created, planned to send your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. Praise you for that. Lord, I thank you, Holy Spirit, because what what you've done for us is you convict us. Maybe there's some today that are being convicted by by the fact that they will stand under judgment and they don't want to stand under judgment and they see their sin and they see the Savior and they want to run to you. Father, you're doing that by your Holy Spirit in their lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that not only you bring conviction, but I pray that you regenerate and bring people to life and faith. I pray, Holy Spirit, for those of us that do know you, that you will bring us a deepening passion to understand the compassion of Christ and the patience of Christ and a desire to learn from him so that we can find rest for our souls. Lord, I pray for our nation. Our nation continues to rebel against you. Our nation continues to spit in your face. 
And you are so very patient with us. Father, there's probably not a nation in this world that gets the privileges that we do to hear your word, to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. We hear it over and over. You're being gracious to us. But Father, that will deepen our judgment if we continue to reject you. So Lord, I pray that we would turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In closing, could you stand with me as we close in our benediction? I found it interesting, this passage in First Timothy. Paul was one of those Pharisees. And he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted in ignorance, unbelief, and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord flowed over for me in faith and love that God rescued him. And this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I've received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ may display his perfect patience. I love that. As an example to those who believe in him for eternal right. And here it is. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Bless him today. Have a great day.